The Astraea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two The Men of the Sea Chapter Four In Which Astraea Learns the Lore of the Men of the Sea Part Two As he had guessed the night before, any emotion his grandfather felt was for the ship and its mission, not for Astraea himself. "'Well done, Astraea,' he imitated sarcastically. "'Your power over the stones amazed me. How surprised I am to find that you're even somewhat intelligent, grandson. However did you learn so much in your primitive little village? It's astonishing that a landlubber could have taught you.' He paused and then spoke in his own voice. "'So glad you liked me, grandfather. It's nice to be appreciated.' The master got under your skin. Estrella turned to see Mirak beside him, a faint smile on his wind-tanned face. I've had happier times, said Estrella. Mirak's grin broadened into a smile. Judging from the looks of the girl you left behind, I'd be inclined to agree. Estrella tensed, and Mirak raised both his hands, palms upwards. No offence. I didn't like what Dramin had us do with you and her. I was under orders. And if it makes you feel any better, she was on her feet and shouting as we pulled away. He spoke softly so that only Astraea could hear. Thank you for that, Mirak, said Astraea. He masked a rush of conflicting emotions with as even a voice as he could manage. Mirak had offered cold comfort. For several heartbeats he stood still, simultaneously damning Adramin, being grateful to know that at least Lindy was unhurt, worrying that she would hate him for leaving her, and, above all, wishing he could try to explain to her what had happened. "'Then, if you're ready,' said Mirak, interrupting Astraea's thoughts by returning to his clipped, business-like style, "'there's more to learn.' For the balance of the day Astraea worked on deck. Compared to his time with Oron, the work was simple. He scrubbed, sluiced, cleaned, lubricated, and tidied and in the process he learned the name and operation of a bewildering number of halyards, downhauls, sheets, topping lifts and preventers, and the location of their belays, as well as the operation of windlasses, capstans, and davits. Mirak was an effective teacher. He explained how things worked, and made sure Astraea could do each job properly. Most of the time Astraea knew at least the principles involved, but even so, the size and complexity of everything aboard Cygnus was daunting. Where he had been familiar with the standing and running rigging necessary for Molly's one mast and two sails, now he had to understand all three masts and the five sails that Cygnus carried most of the time, not counting special sails and their rigging for light airs or storms. Later, when most of the sailors were at work below, Mirak left Astraea sorting out a set of tangled halyards. Adramin appeared at his elbow. Do you have the smallest idea of what you're doing? I'm trying to untangle the halyard on the telltale pennant, said Estrella evenly, meeting his cousin's eyes. Somehow it's wrapped around the head of the sail, and the steersman can't see it properly. Then why don't you go up there and fix it? Estrella stared first at Adramin and then at the masthead, so high above the deck that only by squinting against the blue of the sky was it possible to see the long, tapered flag that had coiled itself around the sail? A real sailor would go up hand over hand, but we can oblige you with a chair. You there, and you too, Betel. Rig a hoist for the commander-to-be. Some day, 
Maybe. Adderman's voice dripped sarcasm. The blue-jacketed boatman appeared from behind one of the longboats in its cradle, and Estrella saw that, once again, his face was so stolid and expressionless that it told him nothing. The man seemed entirely lacking in the curiosity shown by the rest of the crew. Betel chose a spare halyard, knotted a loop in one end, and silently gestured to Estrella that he should sit in the noose and hold the knot in the rope that was at his chin. Betel beckoned, and two sailors threaded the downhaul of the halyard through a block at the foot of the mast, and took the rope over their shoulders. Adramin nodded, and all three ran towards the bow. Estrella was jerked off his feet and yanked into the air, the rope biting into the outside of his thighs. Before he could register fear, he was rising swiftly upwards in the shadow of the sail, his breath taken away. He looked up and saw the rope vanishing into the mast head. His stomach lurched as he swung outboard, high above the water in the lee of the ship. He looked down between his feet and saw Adramin's upturned face diminishing below. The rope twirled above him, so that he faced the horizon, where the sea met the sky in a smooth blue-on-blue -blue line. Then the ship swayed, and his shoulder rasped against the sail, almost breaking his grip on the rope above the knot at his chin. As Cygnus swung back, a lucky kick twirled him to face the mast, which was now close enough for him to half-climb, half-walk up its weather-worn black trunk, now shrunk from several paces around to less than the thickness of his leg. Estrella felt the wind buffet the mast, whine through the halyards and sigh along the edge of the sail. The squeak of rope through a block intensified into a final squawk as he approached the very top. He changed his grip just in time. Had he continued to hold on to the rope above the loop in which he sat, his fingers would have been jammed into the sheave. Estrella's head was level with the truck, the wooden cap at the top. He wrapped his legs around the mast and clung to the stiff triangular top of the sail with one hand. For the first time he was able to do more than glance around him. His shoulder pressed against the main brace. He felt the vibration of wind thrumming along the tarry rope that ran horizontally to the next mast and the next. He looked down. The deck was a narrow strip, slashed diagonally by the sails and their shadows, surrounded by the blue-green sea. He could see Adramin looking up at him, though he could not make out his expression. Astrea swallowed before fear could tighten his throat, and looked around a horizon that surrounded him like the edge of a huge bowl, Cygnus at its centre. He was far, far higher than he had been on the Molly's mast. He knew that a fall to the deck would kill or cripple him, and that he would drown if he fell into the sea. Nonetheless, Estrella felt once again a kinship with a seagull that hovers on the wind before winging off on its invisible paths. Though he still held firmly onto the halyard and mast, he no longer clung with the desperate strength of near panic. Quite calmly, as if someone had pointed it out to him, Estrella noticed the pennant tangled around the top of the mast, only a few handspans fluttering beyond the leech-line of the sail. It was the work of a moment to tug the long, thin flag free so that it floated out and away. Estrella admired the white streamer as it twisted sinuously in the wind, wondering whether he could draw the way it curled and swung, so flexible and jaunty above the knife-edge of the sail. A sudden downward drop brought his stomach to his throat. He clung to the rope with both hands as his feet slid away from either side of the mast. 
he plummeted downward, letting out a yell that competed with the receding screech of the block at the masthead. Astrea had time to decide that the men who had hauled him up must have let go entirely, and to feel fiercely angry at their fatal mistake, before he felt the rope cut into his thighs as his free fall was checked into a controlled landing. A quick heartbeat later, his feet thumped on the deck, and he sprawled at Oron's feet. "'What do you think you were doing?' the old man demanded. Astrea struggled out of the loop in the rope and stood up. "'Untangling the pennant,' he gasped, and then after a breath started to gabble excitedly. "'It's a lot higher than the Molly's mastered. There was nothing to see, except see. It was like flying. I—' "'Go to your quarters, Estrella,' interrupted Oron sternly. "'Stay there until you are summoned to the evening meal. You were foolhardy. No safety lines, variable winds. The ship could have lost you.' What were you thinking, Betel? Have you no more sense than to obey the command of someone who joined the ship this very day? The smile on Astrea's face abruptly turned into an angry frown. Uh, yes, uh, skip, um, master, at, at your command. Astrea turned and walked toward the companionway. Any guilt he might have felt that Betel was being blamed had been driven out of his head by Oron's scorn the pain of his bruised thighs, and the knowledge that only luck had saved him from crushed fingers. As he walked away, nursing his resentment, a movement caught his eye. He looked towards the bow and glimpsed Adramin's black-clad back, half concealed by the foremast. He was talking to Mirak as if he had nothing to do with what had just happened. Estrella descended to his cabin, slammed the door, and sat on the bed, muttering, "'Oh, dear, my grandson, are you all right? I hope you didn't hurt yourself. Could it be that your treacherous cousin put you up to it?' Estrella fumed until Mirak knocked on his door some time later. "'You should be at the master's quarters in a count of five hundred. Wear your good rig.' "'Thanks,' said Estrella, but his tone of voice was bitter. "'Takes you out of yourself being aloft, doesn't it?' "'Yes,' said Estrella, recalling the flying moment at the masthead. "'It was amazing.' "'It's not for everyone, though. Drummin hoped you'd throw up or wet yourself, but you spoiled his fun. "'Now, get along aft, or you'll be late.' There was no mistaking the approval in Mirak's voice. "'Mirak, my grand—uh—the master told me to shave.' "'Do you have funny you should ask?' said Mirak, handing him a cutthroat razor, a cube of soap, and a leather strop. A short time later, shaved, with only a small cut under one ear, washed and wearing a clean white shirt, Estrella knocked on Oron's door. When it opened, he was surprised to be looking over the bent back of an elderly man so stooped that only his yellow-white hair and grey-clad shoulders were visible. The man ushered him into the cabin and then disappeared behind a screen in the corner. Belatedly, Estrella recognized the man as the same person who had brought food to his cabin earlier that day. Evening light streamed through two large windows set in Cygnus' stern, onto a square of white-scrubbed deck, between a pair of long brass-bound boxes that had been secured to the ship's sides and topped with canvas cushions. Estrella went round the table in the centre of the cabin, sat on the port-side box, and looked out at the ship's wake, a man's height below. Close to the ship, the hull cut the gentle swells into white swirls, 
Farther away, the waves rolled into the horizon, where the sun was a red glow behind thin cloud. For the first time since he'd been kidnapped, Estrella was no longer tense against whatever might happen next. Somewhere over the horizon was land, and on it Lindy. Then his moment of calm turned to concern. Would she wait for him? For how long? Too far for a lubber to swim, a voice broke in on his thoughts. He looked up to see Adramin standing, one thumb hooked into the belt of his black sharkskin breeks, his white shirt slightly reddened by the setting sun. But not too far for a man of the sea to sail a small boat. Adramin laughed a short barking noise with no humor in it. Your father tried that. Lot of good it did him. To the table, said Oron behind him. They both turned to see the stooping man help Oron out of his cloak, under which his clothes were solid black, except for a white collar and cuffs. Astrea waited until Oron and Adramin had chosen their chairs and went to the remaining seat. Adramin stood with his hands clenched behind him. Oron's long fingers grasped the chair back. He slowly raised his head and spoke in the measured tone of one who repeats an oath or a prayer. What is the law? Preserve the ship, obey the master, keep faith with those who serve throughout the fleet, and shun land until the time foretold, lest corruption be renewed and honor lost. Adramin replied. Oron and Adramin pulled back their chairs and sat. Astrea copied them, feeling both ignorant and curious. The bent man served them in silence. Astrea looked at his plate, which held a slab of meat beside an unappetizing pile of some green plant. He waited until Oron and Adramin had begun to eat and copied them carefully. "'Well, cousin,' said Adramin, "'how do you like your first taste of whale-meat?' Ignoring the sarcastic tone, Astrea answered evenly, it's been preserved in brine, as we do, but it's not as we prepare it at the village. You get the occasional dead whale washed ashore, then. We take them if they come in past the headlands. It's risky, but the oil is welcome. I kill from the longboat in the open ocean. It's the best sport the sea has to offer. Man against monster. Astrea did not reply at once. He'd seen the huge eye of a dying whale, and he remembered seeing intelligence there. So much life in one of those huge bodies. So much oil, said Adramin. When I killed a whale last summer, we rendered the fat aboard. It took us weeks before the stink left us. The cabin had been growing darker as they ate, and now in the stern windows Astrea could see the last of a peach-colored sunset above the horizon, the clouds lit from below by the vanished sun. Oron raised a hand, and the grey-clad figure emerged from the deepening shadows, lit the lamp on the table, and withdrew into one of the shadowy corners. The meal proceeded in silence until near the end, when the elderly man had brought steaming hot mugs of some tea-like liquid. Oron turned his head towards Astrea. "'Is there sickness in your village?' "'Well, there's the winter sniffles.' But unless you're very old or weak, they're nothing to worry about. And there's accidents. Accidents? Broken bones. Fingers missing from when fishing line gets wrapped around a knuckle. Bad cuts like scar-arm scar Ian. 
his left arm won't straighten. Things like that. No pestilence, no history of plague? Estrella shook his head, thinking of the wrecked ship, Spindrift, and the deserted village. And Estrella, how did he die? At sea, said Estrella, an accident. It happens, said Adramin casually, if you're not careful. Estrella felt his eyes narrow as he glared at Adramin. He was taking a breath to defend his father's memory, when Adramin pursued what he took for an advantage. So have you mastered the magic of the stones yet, cousin? It's not magic. Then you know how the stones work. Adramin's tone was ripe with sarcasm. Estrella had the fleeting thought it would be very pleasant to throw the contents of his mug into his cousin's face. Instead, he took a long breath and explained patiently as if to a child. You know those tiny lightnings you sometimes see on a cold, dry night when you pull a woolen tunic over your head? The stone feeds on even smaller lightnings we all have in our bodies, and that some of us can control. Who told you that? Oron's voice was sharp. Gar, said Estrella without thinking. Gar? Adramin repeated incredulously. A lubber with a stone? His stone was dark, said Estrella. Then he— Estrella stopped, seeing Adramin and Oron exchanging glances. Gianfar? asked Adramin. Oron's eyes gleamed as he raised both eyebrows. Estrella looked from one face to the other. Did this person, Oron asked deliberately, did he say anything else about the stones? He'd been a sailor, I could tell from the way he spoke, and he knew how to use a stone. He told me, think north, and I did. And, well, it did, just like today when I made the shipstone move its pointer. Gianfar, said Oron. I should have known he had a hand in this. That wasn't the name he told me the day he showed me his drawings, began Astrea, and stopped. Hand of Gianfar, he quoted softly, and then clamped his jaw shut. Neither Oron nor Adramin appeared to notice. Everyone called him Gar, even the men, said Adramin scornfully. They say that it was what he called himself when he was little. He couldn't say his whole name, so he shortened it. "'Where is he now?' asked Oron. "'Dead,' said Estrella. "'He died helping me get away from some lubberly argument, I'm sure,' Adramin completed. "'Gianfar loved trouble.' "'Was he from Cygnus?' Estrella asked. "'His father was my brother,' said Oron. "'Did he know my father?' They conspired together, said Adramin, relishing Astrea's anxious look. They were lucky at the trial. Mutineers usually hang or try that long swim you were thinking about. They conspired to do what? That's enough, Adramin. We will not speak of this further. Oron pressed his hands on the table to lever himself upright. Once standing, he leaned forward and looked down at Estrella. Before he could ask any more of the questions that were bubbling up in his mind, Oron's steady gaze quelled him. Estrella, tonight you serve the first watch. Mirac will assist you, but you have the responsibility. May I ask? Unless your question pertains to your duties, no. Estrella clenched his teeth. Then go. Follow the law. Right. Uh, I, I mean, at your command. As he shut the cabin door, Astrea heard Adramin's snort of disapproval, followed by indistinct murmurs. 
Tantalizingly close to finding out why Gar and his father had left Cygnus, Astrea lingered at the door, but when he could hear nothing, he climbed the companionway and out onto the deck. The ship was dark, save for a pale gleam from the wheelhouse that silhouetted the hunched shoulders of the steersman, whose hands moved in the ceaseless task of guiding Cygnus on her way south. A gibbous moon was rising behind wisps of cloud, lighting the occasional white cap in a steadily rolling sea. He looked up, past the curve of the sails to where the mastheads swayed against the dark sky. To the north, Astrea saw stars that had been overhead when he and Lindy had camped on their journey from the castle. To the south were constellations new to him. Some of his frustration ebbed, but his mind itched with the combination of unanswered questions and annoyance at being the butt of his cousin's scorn. Mirak appeared silently from the wheelhouse. "'You're in charge of the ship for the next six hours. Your main task is to stay awake and ready in case there's an emergency. If it's a little one, we'll handle it. If it goes to the safety of the ship or takes us off course, you'll wake the master. You won't be surprised to learn that he hates having his beauty sleep disturbed, and you already know that he can be, well, shall we just say, grumpy. And if tomorrow morning he discovers that something went wrong and you did not wake him, he will be seriously annoyed, and that you can do without. So, are you confident? Astrea swallowed and nodded. Good. Always be confident, whether you feel it or not. Let us now make a turn around the deck together. You'll tell me what sails need trimming, and I will summon sleepy people to do your bidding. On our way, we'll sneak up on the lookouts and try to catch them napping, so that you can report them tomorrow morning when they will undergo unpleasant punishments. You'll check that we're on course, and make sure whoever's on the wheel is doing his job, and while you're doing that, I'll go fetch us a hot drink from the galley and then we'll do the whole routine all over again, until Commander Adramin emerges from his soft bed, rested, smiling, and happy to relieve us, about five and a half hours from now. You will then go to your cabin to have what feels like no sleep at all before it's time for tomorrow's breakfast. Don't you just love the seafaring life? Despite his qualms, Astrea chuckled. Now, let's make the first round. It took them the best part of an hour, during which neither Astrea nor Mirak found anything amiss. When they returned to the wheelhouse, Astrea went in to check on the man on the wheel, and Mirak disappeared below decks in search of hot drinks. When he returned with a steaming jug and a handful of mugs, he found Astrea steering the ship, intently watching a spear of white light, which he guessed was reflected up from the forbidden room onto a pane of glass. The steersman stood beside him, his bald head gleaming in the pale light. He was watching Astrea swing the wheel this way and that to compensate for the tendency of waves to push the bow off course. "'It isn't as easy as it looks,' said Astrea. "'I can't hold Cygnus nearly as close to our heading as you can.' "'Well, sir, I've been at it now for close on forty-five years.' "'Then I should let you do your job before I wake the master with a wavering course.' "'I brought enough for the rest of the what?' said Mirak. "'With your permission?' "'Oh, of course,' said Astrea. "'You and I can stand lookout while the men have their drink.' Astrea saw Mirak and the steersman exchange a quick look as Mirak handed him a mug. "'Mirak, was there something wrong with what I said?' 
Estrella asked as he and Mirak went forward. Not a thing. Trying a trick at the wheel is what your father did. That and sharing jobs so that people can have a mug up. Your dad did it every time. Dramin wouldn't even have thought of it. They walked the deck in silence for a few paces until Estrella decided to ask the question that was troubling him most. Why did my father and Gar, Gianfar, leave Cygnus? Ah, that's a story that goes way back a long way to before Whisper was lost. Her master, Nash, he that was Gar's dad, always held that the fleet should return to land as soon as it was safe to do so. The other masters thought him near to being an oath-breaker. Now, when the whisper went down, young Gar was about your father's age. He and Estrella, your dad, grew up together here aboard Cygnus. The two of them got on like a couple of dolphins playing around the ship's bow. Then someone heard Gar talking about what we all knew his dad had thought, and that someone ratted on them, spreading the word that they were planning a mutiny. And at the next city of the sea it all came out in council, and even beyond, to the crews. Everyone took sides. Some said they were oath-breakers and should hang. Some thought they were innocent. A few thought they were the victims of a jealous plot. Some, and this was only a whisper among best friends, thought they were damn right and that the wandering should end. Near as I can make out, it went down in council this way. Siv was all for stringing them up. Twister thought they were in the right of it, the Dirty Duck thought they were innocent, and Cygnus meaning the master. Siv? The Twister? The Dirty Duck? Estrella asked. Oh, you wouldn't know, would you, said Mirak. Right, I'll go back a step. Five ships. Cygnus, that's us. Whisper had Nash for master. He and just about everyone but his son Gar were lost about forty years ago. Nash had a twin sister, Miessa, although to see you you'd never know because she's a tough one, and that's for sure. She's in command of Silver Swan. She's partly square-rigged, the ship, that is, and hard to handle, especially now there's only women aboard. She used to be the fleet's nursery. Nursery? Till the childless years began, something more than a dozen years ago, we were a regular floating city. Since then, the seaborne have been getting fewer and fewer. But that's another story. Getting back to the names, those of us who bunk before the mast call Silver Swan the Dirty Duck. And there's elusive, the sieve, sometimes the leaky sieve, and she's commanded by Mufrid, Framin's dad. Mufrid is a son of Oron, said Astraeus. Of course, weren't you listening? Last of all, this spindrift, commanded by Alnair. The twister wasn't at the last city of the sea, though most everyone suspects Alnair of going lubber, because he's the only master who isn't a son or a grandson of Zubin, the first grandmaster. Zubin? The one who took us all a-wandering all these many years long ago. Oron's dad, father of our misfortunes—oh, forget I said that—preserver of our health and freedom, is what I said. Remember that. Zubin took us away from the pestilence ashore. He's also the one who started this whole daft business of naming people for stars. Estrella stared into the night as the moon dimmed behind a cloud. Merak's words tugged at a memory he could not quite place. He also had the bleak feeling that he had heard more than he could take pleasure in knowing, but less than he needed to know. Then it was all in the family, my family. My grandfather, uncle, and aunt decided to—what did they decide to do with Gar and my father? 
Like I said, it's not easy to know what went on in the council, cause I wasn't there, and sure as storms in winter the masters will never talk about it. My guess is that Oran had the deciding vote, and he played it to keep the fleet going and the pair of them alive, just. The others went for a swim. The others? There were three men who were supposed to be in on the plot, or who knew about it. Oran deep-sixed them. He what? Mirat gave him a sharp look, and his voice became hard. Their hands were tied, and they were stood up on the stern rail. Oron pushed them in, same as always. He what? It's the master's job. Better than having one of the crew be hated as the executioner. Estrella was aghast. It was the fear of death that kept the men obedient. Death at the hands of his grandfather. Does this happen often? I've seen it a few times. You don't forget a thing like that. But mutiny has to be punished, they say. But my father and uncle, Estrella and Gianfar, were of the family, so they weren't done the way someone like me would be. They were sent on a mission, or a punishment, or to their deaths, or for a chance to prove their loyalty to the oath. It depends whose version of the story you hear. They were dropped in a skimmer not far from where we picked you up two nights ago. A skimmer? A whole lot smaller than the longboat, sailed by one man, at a pinch, too. They were to be allowed back aboard when the next moon was full. I guess they were supposed to come back and tell us they'd been wrong and they were sorry, or that the lubbers were all dead or sick or something like that, but they didn't. They were supposed to come back? Mirak nodded. At least that's what we all thought when the master brought us back into these waters the next month, but the two of them weren't there. And they weren't there again, and again, and again. We were up and down this coastline for months, close enough to smell the land breezes. Then we wandered some more for, what is it, seventeen, eighteen years? Too long, anyway. This spring, Oron brought us back. Don't ask me why. I think I know, said Estrella. He rolled back his sleeve so that Mirak could see the green stone on his bracelet. This came back to life earlier this year. Mirak let out a low whistle. Estrella's stone. So, you really are his son. He looked quickly around. Best not talk much more about this. The lookouts are coming back. Estrella spent the rest of his watch thinking about what he had heard. Mirak prompted him when it was time to make rounds of the deck. On the last tour, Estrella paused on their way back to the command position. Mirak, tell me about my father. He had a clasp. Your clasp. He could work with shipstone. Gar had a clasp like it, and he could navigate as well. Adraman's got a little ring. He can't do diddly. He never could. Made him seriously jealous of Estrella and Gar. That went double for his father, Mufrin, cause Oron never gave him a clasp either. Dramin's a sailor, mark you, knows his stuff, though he's not what you'd call cuddly. But Mufrin, well, he's another kettle of fish. But nobody can't say nothing about him because he's the man who gets recruits and supplies. Why can't they say? Because he's not supposed to deal with the lubbers, and he does. But what about Shun Land? Oron sounds as if he's strict about that. He looks the other way, because we need what Mufrid gets to keep the ships sailing. That's why. And right now we need a whole lot more supplies and replacements, too, so that that gives him a hold over us. And even the master. Replacements? You mean more men? Boys are good, men are better. Kidnapped like me? Pretty much like that, only not so polite. 
Astrea decided not to investigate the extent of Mirak's understatement. He deliberately returned to the subject of Gar and his father. But why would Oron get rid of the two men who could carry on? Weren't they the only two who could help him, and, well, inherit from him? Mirak shook his head. Damned if I know. He had to do something, I guess. Perhaps he hoped they'd come back. Maybe he just didn't want to shove his son and nephew over the side. Astrea frowned. Every question he asked produced unpleasant answers, but he needed to know more. Tell me more about... Not now. It's what's changed. Right, here's how you turn over command to Dramin. Repeat after me. Lights are bright, nothing's in sight, we're on course and the wind holds. Then you tell him the sails we're carrying, starting at the bow. Light airs jib, foresail, mesensail, and mainsail. Estrella dutifully repeated the formula for Mirac, and moments later to Adramin. He was still wide awake when he went below at the end of the watch, and remained so even after he had climbed into his bed. In one night he had discovered more about his father's origins than ever before, and though he still felt the urge to learn the lore of the men of the sea, he was appalled at how Oron maintained command. His grandfather was an executioner. Astrea could not exorcise the mental picture of Oron pushing men over the stern to drown in Cygnus' wake. But as he thought about all that Mirak told him, he began to see connections between the revelations. He knew, or he hoped that he knew, why his father and uncle had rebelled against Oron, and why they had chosen to remain on shore where they would always be strangers rather than serve under a tyrannical master. But there was still a nagging worry that they might have shared Oron's ruthlessness, or participated in the murderous side of the men of the sea that he had seen at the village where the spindrift was beached. And what had he inherited? If circumstances arose, would he too become a compassionless killer? He had felt this fear before, even expressed it to Lindy. Then he had tried to warn her of the darkness he guessed might be within him. Or had he only been searching for reassurance that she would not forsake him? He remembered that she had said something about not blaming himself for what men of the sea had done, but it was one thing to suspect something he did not know for certain, another to know that he was closely related by blood and heritage to men capable of such inhumanity. If she knew what was inside him, would she still want to know him? In the moments before Adramin had knocked on the door of their room at the Black Sheep, Lindy had calmed his fears. He strove to recall her exact reply, and when he could not remember, he tried to see her face in his mind's eye but all he could conjure was a memory of the drawings he had done of her. He eventually slept, but his dreams were troubled and confused. You have been listening to the Astrea Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Chapter 4 In Which Astrea Learns the Lore of the Men of the Sea Astrea lay between sleep and waking, trying to recapture a dream in which Lindy was telling him something that he could not quite hear. A heavy fist pounded on the cabin door, and a voice jerked him out of his reverie. 
Wakey, wakey, wakey! Daylight's burning! The door opened. A man in a blue jacket entered, reached across Estrella to open the scuttle in the ship's side, and watery light came in through heavy glass, revealing the narrow cabin. Estrella swung his feet out of his bunk and reached for clothes that had slid to the cabin sole in the night, trying to order the confusion of events that had brought him to the ship. "'I'm Mirak, and you've missed breakfast. I'm to see that you're rigged out in shipboard garb. You've a lot to learn, and little time to do it in, so roll out, grab your breeks, and get moving. You can wash later.' Estrella struggled into damp clothes, gradually recognizing the voice that had spoken to him just before he fell asleep, connecting it to one of the sailors who had crewed the boat the previous night, and recalled the name that Adramin had spoken in the upstairs room at the Black Sheep. Estrella looked at Mirak and mentally drew his face in squares, head, hair, chin, and eyebrows, each bounded by a firm, heavy line. He was clean-shaven, his dark hair blunt cut to the level of his earlobes, greying at the temples. His lips turned down at the corners, and downward lines led away from his deep-set eyes. His expression, like his voice, suggested resolute optimism despite plenty of experience to the contrary. When Estrella stood to pull on his jacket, Mirak started along the dim passageway without waiting to see if Estrella was behind him. I'm not your nursemaid, but I'll teach you whatever I can. Right now, you're on your way through command rank quarters, and lucky you are to be here, I suppose. Sailing master Adramin's cabin to starboard, master's day cabin astern with night space in the port quarter, three empty cabins on each side because we're undermanned, the forbidden room behind that door amidships, the what? asked Estrella, cinching his belt as he hurried to keep up. You'll find out soon enough. Companionway, don't call it a stair, up to the deck and down to the stern hold, where the spares and replacements should be if we had enough of them. Forward hold is where the fish are, or would be if we were catching them the way we should. We go up. Ten steep steps, and Estrella stood on the deck of Cygnus. He took a deep breath of salt-fresh wind and looked about. Above him the great belly of the sail curved upwards and outwards to its peak, which slanted over the sea beyond the ship's side. Mastrea turned around slowly, conscious of Mirak watching him to see how he reacted to the heaving sea all around. Remembering how Yan had been spooked by not being able to see land, and determined not to seem fearful, Mastrea deliberately grinned at Mirak. "'Nice morning!' he said with a confidence he did not entirely feel. Having spoken, he saw that it was indeed a beautiful day. Mare's tail clouds curled overhead. The waves were blue-green in the troughs, and their crests flecked by the occasional white cap. Close to the companionway was a deck-house, through whose open door he could see the upper half of a spoked wheel, taller than the man who stood beside it. "'Ship's wheel needs constant tending,' said Mirak. Estrella nodded twice, first to show he had heard, then a second time as he realized that his lessons had begun at a level that expected him to know nothing whatsoever about the sea. He was about to say, I know, but bit off the words just in time. At first Estrella had done nothing but wake, obey, and try to keep up. Now that he was more aware of his surroundings, 
he began to appreciate how the sunlight slanted through sails and rigging, throwing shadows that slid back and forth on the deck in time with the motion of the ship. Above him was a boom as thick as his body, holding the foot of a salt-bleached sail so bright that his eyes watered when he squinted upwards at its huge belly. Ahead was a second mast, and further still ahead a third, each with its own sail. Men wearing faded brown shirts and calf-high canvas breeks were swabbing the strangely seamless deck, overhauling the boat in which he had sailed the night before, and going about other duties that Astraea did not understand. As he followed Mirak past the mainmast, Astraea noticed the man's strength. He walked with an easy, rolling gait that reminded Astraea of Gar, but the comparison only accentuated the differences. Mirak was stolid, unflinching. He had a grim humour, but he lacked Gar's spirit, the quality that Astraea had seen in the confrontation with the learneds, when Gar had tipped back his head and vanquished the overbearing green-gowned man with a glance. The memory took Astraea back to the world from which he had been abducted. He felt a confusion of emotions. Remembering Gar brought a pang of loss, but it also recalled his last words, telling him to find the men of the sea. Mirak gestured for Astraea to walk beside him. A glance revealed that his nose had been broken at some time in the past, and that his mouth had one corner higher than the other, making Astraea guess that behind his good humour lurked experiences that most men would prefer to forget. Astraea decided it would be best to ask only questions with direct answers. "'How big is Cygnus?' he asked. "'Well, if you go to the after-rail, and pace your way to where one more step puts you in the salt-chuck, it'll take you about forty big strides,' replied Mirak. "'The tallest mast is roughly one-third higher than she's long, and we have room on board for a hundred people, twice as many if they come in pairs. But we've barely half of a full complement now, which makes for a lot more work.' "'Work?' "'Keeping her going.' Repair, refresh, restore, patch, splice, clean, grease. What these fine folk are doing. Men looked up from their work to watch them go by, but Mirak offered no explanation of who Astraea was. They went down the amidships companionway into the shadowy lower deck, where at the end of a narrow passageway Mirak knocked on a door, and opened it on a small space containing a lean old man sitting behind a tiny lamplit table. He squinted up into Astraea's face, his mouth sagging open to reveal more gums than teeth. One of the old man's eyes was blue, while the other gleamed pearly white like the inside of a shell. "'Estrea, this is Will Lanborn,' said Mirak. "'Estrea,' the old man quavered, "'did you come back?' "'No, Will, this is Estrea's son. Kit him out in command gear. Right, strip down, lad.' Astraea glanced from one to the other and took off his shirt. Green light from his bracelet lit his skin and threw shadows across his face. The old man pushed on the table and rose unsteadily to his feet. Once standing, he swung his fist to below his throat. "'Commander Astraea,' began Will. "'My name is Astraea, but I am no commander,' said Astraea, choosing his words with care. "'I have no right to your salute.' and I don't deserve the respect you gave my father, for which I thank you. I hope some day 
I can earn it for myself. Will swung his head to look out of his good eye at Mirak, who nodded. The old sailor's eyebrows rose. He sucked in his cheeks and started to pull out the drawers that covered three of the four sides of the space in which he worked. Soon Astraea found himself wearing clothes like those he'd seen on Adramin, soft-soled, almost heelless boots that pulled on without ties, tight-fitting black shark-skin breeks and a jacket over a white shirt, all of which fitted him better than the clothes he had borrowed from Walt's Inn. Will showed him where doubled flaps lapped over themselves to make the jacket and its pockets waterproof, and indicated how to position his green stone under one of these openings. When he'd finished changing, the old man put two full kit-bags at his feet. Three shifts of daily, one of dress, saved for your father's return, said Will. I'll try to wear them well, said Estrella. As he spoke, he became conscious that he was wearing clothes made for, and perhaps even worn by, his father. He tucked one of the bags under one arm, and was reaching for the second when Mirak swung it to his shoulder. Estrella saw Mirak and Will exchange a quick glance he could not fathom. They retraced their steps back to Estrella's cabin, where Mirak opened a locker below his bed and dropped the kit-bag into it. A measured thudding echoed through the ship. Mirak pounded his heels in time to the sound, and indicated that Estrella should do so as well. "'All hands,' said Mirak. "'It's five heels. You can tell by how fast they come. Command does the first five slow. We repeat quick up and down the ship. It's to call the ship's company, and it's happening for you. Let's get about it.' When Estrella's head was level with the top step of the companionway, he saw sailors coming from their work to stand side by side, facing the stern. They moved into their places deliberately, economical with their strength, as men do who have long outgrown the energy-wasting movements of youth. They were all clean-shaven, and wore their hair cut at earlobe height. Their faces varied in features, skin tones, and expressions, but there were no young men or boys. All were at least one generation older than Astraea, and some were much older still, as stooped shoulders and sloping backs made clear. Some of them limped or shuffled. One lacked an arm. One had a puckered eye-socket instead of an eye. Accustomed as he was to the injuries that marked many of the village fishermen, Astraea noticed that many of the men had been seriously damaged at some moment in their lives. There were missing fingers, scarred cheeks, and the hunched or uneven shoulders of men who have sustained bad falls or accidents probably involving thick ropes and heavy spars. All wore brown, their sturdy breeks stopped well above their ankles, their feet were bare, their jackets were weathered brown, and their shirts close to white. He looked again and noticed two white-haired women he had missed at first glance. The crew stood two to three deep, formed up from one side of the ship to the other. On the deck, at the feet of the front rank, was a line of metal studs that separated the crew from Oron and Adramin by several strides. On the starboard side, Adramin stood casually, as if bored. His black ankle-high boots, close-fitting black breeks and jacket, and even blacker hair, made him stand out in contrast to the sailors, but even more distinguishing was the way he arrogantly assessed the men around him, none of whom met his eyes. 
Estrella looked into their faces and saw that they were all looking at him, with expressions ranging from curiosity to something closer to disbelief. Embarrassed, he slowed to a standstill until Mirak's hand on his shoulder lightly indicated he should stand in the same position as Adraman but on the port side. Mirak then positioned himself to Estrella's left and a pace closer to the crew, reflecting the stance of another blue-jacketed man who stood at Adraman's right shoulder. Adraman's expression became more attentive, but he still contrived to look as if he wished he was somewhere else. Behind him Estrella heard slow, soft footfalls, and a moment later Oron came up to the companionway and stood between Adramin and Astrea, facing his crew. His long, hooded cloak fell straight down from his shoulders to his ankles, where it rippled slightly in the wind. Two white hands appeared through the armholes of the cloak, rose head-high, and lifted the hood off his white hair. The deliberate movement drew all eyes to him. "'Men and women of Cygnus,' said Oron in a light but carrying voice, "'we now know that Commander Estrella is dead. But before he died he sired a son, and called him by the same name he bore. That son, my grandson, stands before you now. He has much to learn of the ways of the sea before he can use the authority he has inherited. So that he can learn from me, he will be quartered aft, as is befitting his origin. So that he can be familiar with the ship, he will work with you. Estrella's son, Estrella, is a member of the family, and one of Cygnus. Mirak gave Estrella a little push forward, and Oron slowly turned his head to look at Estrella as if he expected him to say something. Master, men, and women of Cygnus, said Estrella, his voice sounding much firmer than he felt. All my life I have wanted to understand the life my father lived before he married my mother and fathered me. I know I have much to learn from my grandfather and from you. The crowd of men moved slightly, and Estrella thought he saw interest and even approval in some of the faces of those in the front rank. Oron frowned at Estrella, glanced at the men facing him, and slowly nodded. He turned to Mirak. Boatman Mirak, you are charged with teaching Estrella seamanship from bowsprit to bumpkin. Sailing Master Adramin, you will instruct Estrella in the duties and customs of command, and introduce him to the art of sail. I will meet with him each day for the law of navigation. In time he may fully take up his father's position. In the meantime he will serve in nominal command of the port watch. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.